0: Welcome to God Knows Where, I'm Brett Harris. Before we get into today's episode, I want to let you know that this episode acknowledges the existence of sex, and it also references a statistic concerning suicide. So if you're listening with anyone who might not be ready for those topics, give it a listen first or or pull up another episode of God Knows Where today and come back to this one later. Thank you for all your support of the show. I'm looking forward to making an exciting announcement about the show soon, so watch out for that. And if you haven't already, make sure you're following the show in your favorite podcast app and on social media. You can also leave us a review or a rating wherever you listen, and you can tell somebody else about God Knows Where. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Sin Wedge. Love the sinner, hate the sin. Ernest Hemingway was famous, or at least is famously attributed, for his six word story, For Sale Baby Shoes Never Worn. And I just saw another six word story online, a road sign declaring caution, low flying owls, with a handwritten sign scribbled below it saying lost chihuahua. But these six words, love the sinner, Hate the sin are a six-word story that has utterly derailed the church. Often, supposedly spoken in love and expressing one's care for a person but not their actions, these six words keep an entire segment of our population from walking into a church service to worship with us, and they divert the church from the message and example of Jesus. The church goes out of its way to keep its doors, its pews, its offices, its pulpits closed to the LGBTQ community. And yet, two of the best leaders within the church that I know are openly gay. One leads unassumingly from the pews, saying yes to help out in whatever way she can, whether she has the time to do it or not. Teaching Bible studies, leading local partnerships, playing music, whatever it takes, she does it and a church with a hundred people like her would be unstoppable. The other one leads from the pulpit. Check out Westfield United Church of Christ in Killingly, Connecticut. There you'll find a growing, vibrant congregation with love for their community, opening their doors on cold winter days, filling literal thousands of eggs with candy for the annual egg hunt, and so much more. They're led by my friend John Chapman. He's the one with the comma pen that I talked about in a previous episode. And and on top of the congregation and its vibrant life and its growth and all that's going on there, on top of all that, I've watched from afar as they've given John the space to care for and grieve his father's death. Most churches would expect their pastor back the Sunday after the funeral, but these folks know that there is more to life and death than Sunday mornings. And the church is lucky to have both of them because statistically speaking, only one of them should be there. A recent report by the Public Religion Research Institute found that half of the LGBTQ community is religiously unaffiliated. Half. If I told you that half of any population, men, women, 18 to 29-year-olds, families with young kids, whatever demographic you could think of, if I told you that half of them were unaffiliated. Many churches would jump up and try to figure out exactly what they needed to do to reach these folks. I guarantee it. And you know if your church would do that for the LGBTQ community. We all know what our churches and our communities would do, how we would respond to that information. But regardless of where we fall, a whole lot of hurt, has been done, and continues to be done in the name of love the sinner, hate the sin. And Jesus never said that. He did say in lots of different ways, in lots of different contexts, to love the sinner. But we're the ones who add hate the sin. There's no hate in Jesus. There's no exclusion in Jesus. Grace is meaningless if there is. If there's any exclusion in Jesus, it's a desire to keep legalism away from love. And even then, at his darkest moment, at Jesus' darkest moment, when religious folks are at their worst and they sentence him to death for the expansiveness of his love, he says to them, Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. And furthermore, Jesus never talks about homosexuality as a sin. Not once. He never even talks about homosexuality at all, in any way. In three years of ministry, and untold hundreds or thousands of people healed and preached to and dined with, and in at least four different written versions of his ministry, not one single time does it come up. Not once. Doesn't come up frequently in the rest of the scriptures either, but just like with women, when it does, we latch on to it and we enshrine it as the law of the land, that being gay is a sin. Before Jesus, we get this from Leviticus 18. Do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. That is detestable. And after Jesus, there's this from 1 Timothy. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality. And with Jesus, there's this. And because of that, something has to give. Some say, well, Jesus didn't say a lot about a lot of issues. And that's right, he didn't. Maybe we should pay attention to that. Maybe we should pay attention to how much more we seem to be concerned with certain parts of life than Jesus was. Because Jesus dealt a lot with a lot of questions about identity about his identity, about other people's identity, about who was in and who was out. But there's not one story we have where someone who is gay comes up to Jesus and asks to be changed. There's not one story where Jesus stands on a hillside and tells the crowds that it is evil if they love someone of the same gender. There's not one story where some zealot drags a gay man or woman to Jesus and tells him to do something about this sinner. And I don't think that's because no one was gay in first century Judea or Palestine. There most certainly were gay people living near Jesus, walking in the crowds, maybe even becoming disciples. Who knows? It feels impossible for Jesus to live and move through the same world where Sodom and Gomorrah were condemned and where Paul and others were teaching and preaching and for it to never come up as an issue or a sin, not from him, not from a person in the crowds, not even from a Pharisee, if it were as cosmically important as we make it out to be in the church today. The closest Jesus comes to having anything to say about human sexuality is when he is asked about when it's acceptable for a man to divorce his wife. And he quotes Genesis and reminds them what was written about a man leaving his family to join his wife and the bond that that is and the promise that they made and how it was supposed to be a permanent bond. But I don't see what a man, probably just asking for a friend, right? I don't see what a man figuring out a way out of his marriage has to do with who can or cannot love someone else. Many years ago, a friend came to me to ask for advice. He needed to talk to some family members about coming out of the closet. He was afraid of how the conversation might go. And my advice to him was not to get into a Bible drill contest with anyone because he would lose. One, because the words are there. The words I've said earlier, the words we know, men should not lay with men and so on and that it's an abomination. We know what the Bible says. Those words could be flung at him by them with venom at any moment. And also, he would lose because even if he threw back other verses that speak to God's love or to Paul's assertion that in Christ there is no longer male nor female, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, or or other verses with similar meanings, they would still point out the very clear prohibitions against a particular act in other parts of scriptures. It would just become this circular shouting match that would get no one closer to a different perspective, and it would probably just end up driving a bigger wedge between them. And he didn't want that. He wasn't asking for that. No one wanted that for him. All he wanted was to be honest with his family. He wanted to talk to them about himself, And how to be himself in the world. He didn't want to keep a secret anymore. Secrets are heavy. And he simply wanted to set this one down. Secrets are harmful. And they breed shame. And shame is the most powerful wedge between us and each other. If we want to drive people away, all we have to do is make them feel shame for any reason. And love the sin, hate the sinner is the thin end of a wedge. And the more we drive it in, the more we use it, the farther we push people away. And Jesus never pushed anyone away. We've already talked about that in a previous episode in regards to the crowds. They kept coming, and he kept meeting their needs. When people came to him or he found people like the woman the Pharisees wanted stoned or the Samaritan woman at the well, he didn't push them away because of anything they had done or any part of their identity. He brought them in. He welcomed them in. He took the wedge and used it as a doorstop to keep the doors between them open, not to shut them out. I don't know a lot, but here's what I do know. I do know that 50% of the LGBTQ community is religiously unaffiliated. They might want to come to church, but they could do without the shame. And so could Jesus. I know that every 45 seconds, an LGBTQ youth attempts suicide. So in this podcast, that's somewhere around 20 young people attempting to take their own life. Teenagers all around us are growing up, experiencing all the biological changes that we go through in puberty, and they're deciding that not being here with us is the best solution. Jesus' heart is broken when we make them believe that. I also know young people and grown folks who have been crushed by the weight of shame that the church has put on them and how it has physically harmed their minds and their bodies and their souls. But Jesus came to open our minds and to heal our bodies and to free our souls. And I trust that Jesus could never stomach that the church, his church, continues to drive this wedge between people that he loves. We latch on to the divisive and the definitive parts of scripture because we think they provide order and structure, right and wrong, sin and sanctity, but not Jesus. He latches on to the relational and restorative nature of God because that's how hate gives way to love. And that's how shame gives way to confidence. And that's how the wedge we use to split ourselves apart can become the doorstop that keeps the doors of our minds and our hearts open to each other. Love the sinner, hate the sin? No, Jesus is too big for that. God Knows Where is written, produced, and edited by me, Brett Harris, with music by Thomas Steinwinder and Michael Trest, and unwavering support from my wife, Elizabeth. If you like what you hear, I'd encourage you to share God Knows Where with your friends and family and give us a review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this show. It'll mean the world to me, and it'll help more people find God Knows Where. Thanks in advance for your help and for being here and for listening. Until next time, take these words from William Sloan Coffin with you. May God give you the grace never to sell yourself short. Grace to risk something big for something good. Grace to remember that the world is too dangerous for anything but truth and too small for anything but love. So may God take your minds and think through them, your eyes and see through them, and your hearts and set them on fire.